Hey everyone, this is Alex and Ben. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. I want to make progress and I want to shoulder other people's burdens. I really do want to see a strong institution and the legislature in our state of Oregon, they are strengthened with two parties that are both strong. They can both do a good job articulating the arguments, communicating with the public and being rational, but also being credible. And to be able to serve in that role and to be able to advance that goal, I made the decision to run for a Republican leader. All right, everybody, welcome back. We're really excited today. We have uh, Representative Christine Drazen who will be joining us today. Christine Drazen is really interesting because she currently serves as the minority leader of the Oregon House Republicans. Uh, she was the chief of staff back in the 1990s in the state legislature. She used to be the executive director of a nonprofit advocacy group, and she represents a, a rural district that makes up Clackamas County. So Ben, how do you think the episode went? This was one of my favorite conversations that we've had so far. Representative Drazen is incredibly impressive, and I think she is one of the few Oregon Republicans that I've heard from and have spoken to where I'm like, oh, wow, I would not want to be a Democrat running against her, because you can, you can see in the way she's talking, she's very good at talking to real people and not using political jargon, not sounding like a political robot, and speaking directly to the issues that people are experiencing. So I thought she was I thought she was really effective as a communicator. What did you make of her theory about how to deal with the Republican Party post-Trump in Oregon? It was interesting, yeah, and I, I liked her a lot too. She was very calm. She came across as a real person. Everybody knows we hate political buzzwords. There wasn't too many of those, which is fantastic. She was also running in between meetings and she was able to just kind of come with us in a very coherent way, which I, is, a, is a tough skill to be able to have. So I was, I was happy about that. But uh, moving on to your question, basically what she's advocating for is actually getting rid of the Oregon Bridge in our thesis in the sense of, we think that national politics is overtaking local politics. She's saying, whoa, whoa, in order for Oregon Republicans to be able to win, we need to basically push back against this trend because if we have to run on national issues, we're just gonna continuously lose. If we have to run on Donald Trump in Oregon, we're gonna lose. If we have to run on Josh Hawley or Marco Rubio, we're probably gonna lose. She's really saying, we need to double down on the local issues. We need to have our own unique Oregon brand and that's what we need to be conveying to voters. And in the episode, I allude to Charlie Baker and Larry Hogan. For those of you who don't know, those are the governors of Massachusetts and Maryland respectively, who have basically followed that strategy to victory in those two blue states, basically by running, you know, ignoring Donald Trump in most cases, and in some cases, distancing themselves from him. But I thought it was, it was interesting because I think you can argue Newt Bueller tried that and it didn't work very well, but that doesn't mean it can't work in the future. Yeah. And I mean, it's just going to be different across the board. And one thing Ben, I realized we forgot to bring up, and I'm blank on his name right now. I swear his first name is Phil, but the governor of Vermont is also a Republican. And there was this fascinating story that I read once in Politico that people would basically have signs in their front porch that said, Phil for governor. And then right next to that, they would have signs that say Bernie Sanders for, for senator, Bernie Sanders for president. So you actually have people in states like Vermont, in states in Maryland, in states like Massachusetts who they're pulling the trigger for someone very progressive, and then they're also pulling the trigger for a Republican, who, of course, I don't think that I would call Charlie Baker a conservative. He wouldn't call himself that either, but I mean, he is at least center-right. He is a member of, of the Oregon, or of the of the GOP. He's not a member of the Oregon GOP. But I mean, Ben, I'm curious, why do you think that that might be working in places like 
Maryland, Massachusetts, and Vermont, which I also want to point out, those states are much more progressive and much more democratic leaning than Oregon. What do you think is the magic sauce here that we're basically missing? And do you think that she did a good job of addressing that in the episode? Well, I think the biggest difference is geography. Like Massachusetts, rural Massachusetts compared to rural Oregon is just a very different world and very different place. So I think I think the biggest difference is like many folks in Eastern Oregon align more closely culturally and economically with Idaho than they do with the state of Oregon. So I think that's the fundamental challenge that someone like Newt Bueller had, which is he's trying to run towards the center and towards the sort of like metro Willamette Valley area by presenting himself as like a social moderate, et cetera. But the further you go in that direction, the further away you go from the Republican sort of grassroots in Eastern and Southern Oregon. So I don't know. I think I, I don't envy the challenge, but someone like Trump, like the, the answer that I think maybe Alex Carlottos would give, that's a slight contrast to Representative Drazen is like to sort of like ignore that spectrum and go more towards the sort of economic populist side that mm -hmm. Donald Trump did, which is, you know, like Donald Trump famously said he didn't care about certain issues, like didn't didn't care about, you know, the transgender bathroom issue and just sort of ignored the cultural stuff and ran towards economic populism. And then of course ignored it as president, but that's another story. Well, and one thing I want to point out for the viewers in particular, which I thought was one of the most interesting things that we asked her, but basically the Oregon Republican Party wrote this letter, which got national attention. Basically, Ben, you can probably speak a little bit toward what was actually in the letter because I'm blanking a little bit right now. But basically, this letter said, we need to stand up for Donald Trump. We need to do all of these sort of things to make sure that, that we stand it was, with him. It was, and, so much, it was so much crazier than that. The letter was like, the January 6th insurrection was a false flag operation that was led by Antifa. Like, and it said stuff like, we need to, we can't allow any domestic terrorism legislation to move forward. Like, it was, it was, it was bizarre. And sure. And so, even despite what was in the letter, to me, that's basically these members of this committee or the, the state GOP are basically saying, we're doubling down on Trumpism. That's what we're doing going forward. We're doubling down on, on President Trump. And one thing I really want to point out to, to the listeners is that one, Representative Drazen basically had her entire caucus, one, condemn the letter which I thought was interesting. I think that's a very rare split. I'd actually would be really curious to look at folks who've made similar statements and look at different state legislatures and how they've responded to those issues, because I, I don't think it would be this way. I think you'd probably see more people actually standing with a letter like that across different states, whereas the Oregon House Republicans are basically saying, nope, we condemn this, we're not standing for well, it. Well, it's, it's that, that's sort of it's been the reverse in most states, right? Like national level, someone will vote for impeachment or not support the recounting ballot whatever and so the state gops would then censure those leaders and in oregon it was kind of the opposite like you had the grassroots republican party come out with this statement and in effect the republican caucus of the house was censuring the gop and saying we don't agree with any of that so fascinating dynamic at play yeah and then she also and, and you alluded to this in the episode and it's something that i just want to will point out is she basically said we need to move on from, from President Trump. She didn't say necessarily we need to move on from some of the aspects of Trumpism in terms of the policy, but basically she, I think she directly said that the party shouldn't be defined by one person. I thought that was a pretty powerful statement to, to make in terms of that, you know, if you look at actual polling right now, a poll I saw the other day is that 53% of GOP primary voters want to see Donald Trump run for president again. And the person below him is yeah, Vice President Pence with 13%, then Donald Trump Jr. with like 9% or something like that. <laughs> so clearly that's not where the party's at. And 
as you alluded to, I imagine that's not where her district is at. So uh, I'm really curious to see what sort of happens if she continues to speak that way, or maybe she sort of walks that back if she gets political pressure from the grassroots. But I thought that was a pretty bold statement to make when I think most of the party across the country and in Oregon, too, is really still hoping that, you know, for example, President Trump stays really involved. He runs for office again and stuff like that. I just first have to acknowledge the political genius of the folks who say we need to move on from Donald Trump to Donald Trump Jr. That's how we need to move on from Donald Trump. (laughs) But yeah, I, I agree. And I think, so in terms of the focus on district issues and local issues, the issue that Representative Drazen has identified as sort of primary right now is COVID-19 related, and in particular, reopening schools. And I thought that made for a fascinating conversation. And there's been some movement since we recorded our interview with the representative on this front, the governor, who, um, of course, she was in this episode and in her public statements has been putting pressure on to be more proactive to get the schools open. The governor actually announced that all schools in Oregon must reopen to hybrid or in-person instruction by certain dates. I think it's March 29th for K-5 and April 19th for... Do you you think that that pressure, because at least she didn't say it explicitly, but Rep Drazen sort of implied that it's not only the House Republicans and, and the senators that want to do this, but also basically folks like Speaker Kotek. They want to take some of the power back with them too. She didn't explicitly say that, but I I feel like she did sort of imply that, that, you know, Democrats aren't outraged, but maybe they're feeling a little bit uncomfortable. They're getting left out of the conversation. Do you think that the legislature put pressure on Governor Brown and that sort of was the step forward? Or do you really think it's still Governor Brown driving the show there? And that was just kind of a, a decision that she made on her own with her own advisors. I think it was Governor Brown's decision. That's my best guess. I think like, I think- Okay, interesting. Legislators may have weighed in, but the context here that's important is the Biden administration is pushing for schools to reopen, right? Most states, including blue states, have reopened to in-person, some version of in-person instruction. The CDC has says it's safe to open for in-person instruction. So it's not like- I do think that political pressure contributed. I think like the governor is listening to people, but I would say that the political pressure- could have just as easily been coming from DC or from certain, you know, Democratic officials. Like, I doubt that, you know, Republican officials pressure is what made the difference. Although I do think Representative Drazen's point is a good one. If you're a parent of a kid, and you want what's best for your kid, whether that's to keep your student out of schools or to get your kid back into schools, whatever you think is best for your kid, you don't really care what your partisan label is. And Representative Drazen is betting on most parents aligning with her view, which is parents Democrats, Republicans, independents want the schools open. Well, yeah. And I mean, we've had, you know, people who are pretty conservative and people who are pretty progressive on this podcast. And they've, I think they disagree with the mechanics probably of how that should work. But in general, people say we need to get kids back in school. That's clearly a pressing issue from the experts perspective. But then as you said, yeah, voters want to have their kids back in school. That's just something that we need to do and that people are calling for. So Absolutely. But yeah, overall, an excellent episode. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope all of our listeners enjoy it too. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast, give us a five-star rating, and reach out to us if you have suggestions on future guests or future topics you'd like us to cover. Anything else, Alex? Yeah, and also send us your questions. We'd love to spend a couple minutes, you know, while we're doing each of these episodes, just answering your questions, hearing your feedback, all of that sort of thing. Even if they're mean ones, we like to hear those too. Sometimes those can also be funny. So please feel free to let us know. But but thanks everybody again for tuning in and we hope that you enjoy the episode. Thanks everyone. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge podcast. Today, we're really excited to have Rep. Christine Drazen, who is the leader of the House of Republicans in the state legislature. Rep. Drazen, how are you doing today? 
Yeah, I'm great. It's sunny out there. I think I saw my first crocus in my front yard. So good things ahead. Yes, it, it, always a nice day when it's sunny in Oregon, but before June, which is so very rare. Uh, and uh, wait, wait, for wait, mine, after Fourth of July, you mean at, it has to be sometime before the fourth? <laughs> I, I feel like June is still pretty nice, but yeah, after the fourth, it, it it feels much safer. But thank thanks so much again for for joining us today. Your staff just told us actually that you had just come from a hearing where you were speaking on one of your priority bills, one of your priority pieces of legislation. Curious to know what you were speaking on, what the issue was, and what the bill is. So it actually is funding for homeless, unaccompanied homeless youth in the state of Oregon. In my first session in 2019, my priority legislation that year was in support of a program through Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon called Second Home. And I got funding for my legislative district specifically to support homeless students in Canby, rural Clackamas County, Estacada, all through this area that doesn't otherwise have services already. And I saw the kind of difference that it was making in my community this year 2544 is this opportunity for me to link arms with my my counterpart, uh, Representative Barbara Smith Warner, who is the House Majority Leader on the House Minority Leader, as well as others. It's a very bipartisan bill, but we are chief sponsoring it together. And it will provide grants, it will provide uh, supports for host homes, which is what Second Home in particular does. So I'm really, really uh, pleased to be a part of supporting that work. You know, Oregon is not surprisingly among worst in the nation for supporting our unaccompanied homeless youth. And we spend pennies on the dollar here. And even our neighbors to the north in, in Washington spend about 33 million a year. And we spend about between one and two. So we have work to do. We have kids who have needs that are going unmet. And in this coronavirus gig where you have to have access to a computer to even engage in your own education, it really matters that people have a roof over their heads in the day, access to a computer, not just sleeping at night. So it is absolutely critical and essential to get as much support uh, for our students as we can. I love the the partnership between you and Representative Smith Warner. That's one of the things we're we're interested in this podcast is what are the areas where the two sides can work together. But you said something before I, I go to the next question. You said something about unsurprisingly, Oregon isn't performing well. What do you think the the root cause is there, or why why has this? What were you alluding to with with that point? I think Oregon has a challenge when it comes to adequately funding our our human services and our social services. And my own personal bias in this category, it's because whenever we tax, you know, I guess they, they're in some, in some circles are called sin taxes, right? Beer, wine, marijuana, lottery, whatever. We, the, the state skims off the top for other policy areas. When that leaves interventions, behavioral health, mental health, mm-hmm. <laughs> homeless supports, uh, kind of living off the scraps. And that I think is, has been a challenge for our state and has uh, meant that we have lagged further and further behind. To be a little bit more charitable about it, it's also possible that the homeless crisis has really exploded since the Great Recession and that it's taken us somewhat by surprise the extent to which these services are really needed and they don't have dedicated funding. And so I guess you could look at it two different ways. It is kind of emblematic of how we fund in the state of Oregon in that we have the opportunity through taxes on those products to be able to support the social impacts of of the use of those products. And we don't entirely. And in addition to that, after the Great Recession, the recovery hasn't been equal 
across all sectors and everybody in our state. And so we have work to do to be able to get people back on their feet and back on track and in a place where they're stabilized and they can choose for themselves what their future looks like. And that in this case is gonna take some investment. Fascinating conversation. I know there's some proposals. Uh, I just saw Representative Prusak and Representative Sanchez came out with a, a proposal to increase liquor taxes that kind of is around the edges of what you're talking about here. Zooming out a little, we're gonna talk more about policy in a moment, but um, rumor has it you were a legislative staffer back in the 90s. And as a former staffer myself, you hear horror stories about what the legislature was like back then and, and what it was like working there. So I'm curious, just on a broad level, what, and COVID aside for a moment, because I know this is a, a wild session to be trying to um, conduct business, but what are the major differences in terms of how the legislature operates from when you were staffer there versus now as a member? It is night and day, absolutely night and day. I mean, the thing that's the same is Peter Courtney was there then and he's still there now, <laughs> right? Like that's never going to change. Yeah, he'll be there um, 30 years from now too. Yeah, I, I, there's no doubt. I believe that with every fiber in my being. But I would say that one of the biggest things that was really, really different is that there were no, there were, there was no expectation of boundaries uh, in the building. And so we would start on the floor at, you know, eight in the morning and go until 11 at night. And it was, it was routine. It's routine to just have these crazy long days and nobody went home in between, everybody stayed in Salem. And so you had socializing with everybody, receptions, you know, people did stuff together. It was a community and it was a community partially just because you didn't have any time for a private life, that was kind of work. Uh, but it also was expected that you really got to know everybody and you got to know staff across the aisle and you got to know other legislators in a social context as well. And I think a lot of people have felt like there was some downside to that and that's uh, that's been super obvious too. But I would say that there was upside. Mm. Uh, It personalized the process. And I always, he hates it when I do this, but I do use Peter Courtney a little bit as my example in some of this stuff. He was, he did my job at that time. He was house minority leader. And my boss was the House Majority Leader in my first year there as staff. Who was it and at the Peter, time? It was Ray Baum. Okay. He went on to do PUC and then worked for Congressman Walden and has recently passed away. But Ray was the Majority Leader. And Ray and Peter would meet up in Ray's office uh, to go run together. Now, picture this, Peter Courtney. <laughs> Short yeah, shorts, jogging was, down Salem. Yeah, and they're 90 shorts, right? They're not like you know, current shorts. They're like 90s shorts. I, I feel like shorts are sort of recessing to that level though. They're, they are getting as short as they were in the 90s. You are they, right. Ma- you ma- are maybe right. progress doesn't always happen over time. Well, they're not as short as the 70s. There's no such thing as as short <laughs> in the 70s, but they weren't great in the 90s. But I would just, uh, that aside, I don't know how I went down that weird rabbit hole. But, <laughs> but what that, what I'm trying to say about this though, was that those folks for me represented what the legislative process, what what was normal for the legislative process, which was people had an actual relationship. They might, you know, they might not have Thanksgiving together, but they actually enjoyed each other's company. And they saw the pathways to solving Oregon's problems really differently. You know, they both wanted to get to point B, but they went, took very circuitous routes Mm. to get there. And that was, that was what, you know, in public, they had public policy battles about those things. But 
that got left on the field. And that's what's different. So there is no more, there is no more personal connection. It's all partisan politics. That, that's fascinating you say that because that seems to mirror what people say about Congress on the national level is the similar oh, really? had the Ted Kennedy era where everybody was backslapping after the floor debates and that's gone. Um, but I want to ask about the sort of the darker underbelly of that kind of a legislature. And so the representative Diego Hernandez um, mm -hmm. issue, he's announced his re resignation. And it's about sexual harassment in the workplace. And one of the things that um, is frequently talked about among staff is how regular that was back in the day, particularly for women staffers who were just subjected to an industry driven by male lobbyists and male members who had no boundaries, as you alluded to, and who the folks in power would kind of look out for each other in power and kind of down downplay allegations and keep things hidden and covered up. So I'm curious about how far have we come in that respect? Um, mm. Obviously, we have a member resigning and um, some intense pressure. But one of the things, second time I'm alluding to her, but Rep. Tana Sanchez said on the ethics committee was, this is a practice that has been going on for a long time um, and still is um, pervasive in, in some ways. And it's a person of color who's being targeted here. So I'm curious your thoughts on where we are today in terms of the workplace environment of the legislature. Yeah, I, I think that there, I think it's important to recognize the need for change and then it's important to take action in support of that needed change. And the legislature is absolutely doing that. I, I mean, structurally, if you stop having floor until 11 o'clock at night, that's a good thing. People get home to their families. They don't uh, head off for margaritas for an hour and a half long dinner and then come back into the building and act like it's professional time when that's not where their headspace is anymore. It's just not healthy. Mm -hmm. um, but kind of setting that aside, it's interesting, the conversation around Diego Hernandez, the House Republican caucus is relatively new. Mm -hmm. If you take a look at our tenure among our caucus members, you know, I mean, other than um, Representative Greg Smith, the majority of our caucus members have served in that building six years or less. And so they have no uh, point of reference for anything other than kind of the, the, um, the Jeff Cruz era kind of moving forward, where it's really all been about recognizing how far we have to come and then working on that. And, and so when we, came, when we went through this conversation with Representative Fernandez, I don't know if this would be something that people would expect, but every single female member in our caucus has a personal story about sexual harassment or, or kind of more advanced uh, issues than that in this category. Every single one of us, and there's nine. Wow. So I don't think wow. this issue is limited to the legislature. I think this issue is the, is the progression of women in the workforce and the progression of, the, of, our, of our culture nationally to begin to recognize that work needs to be work. And, our, and, and boundaries are, don't have to be impersonal. They protect relationships and they protect personal safety and they matter. And so I, I guess that I, I was there in the 90s and I know from personal experience what that was like, but my colleagues that are new to the building weren't there in the 90s and they worked in a variety of other categories, many of them male dominated to then be able to get to the position where you run for state rep. You know, you have not been, you've been in your community, you've been in a leader in a sector before and this, we all have stories and they all sound remarkably similar. So I would say um, the reckoning isn't limited to our elected lives. It really is uh, kind of probably and most likely across, across our culture. 
That's great. And yeah, Rev, Rev Jason, so I want to transition the conversation talking uh, just a little bit more about your story also. So I think that a lot of people uh, uh, were surprised basically by your sort of quick rise. And as I was prepping for this podcast, I was uh, basically looking for more information about your background. I was looking for, you know, the Willamette Week interview or the Oregonian one-on-one or, or, or things like that. And there wasn't actually too much information about you out there. So I'm, I'm sort of curious because you, you know, came into the legislature, you rose to the highest position in leadership very quickly. Uh, can you just kind of walk us through how that process went? Was it, was it surprising for you? Was this something that you always, you know, you, you basically saw this position and you wanted to take it immediately or just kind of curious to hear more about the story behind that? And for our listeners, I think it was a contested leadership election too. So it was kind of surprising to some folks in the building at the time of that internal caucus election. So yeah, I'd love to hear, love to hear the story there. You guys think that you're the first one, so I'm going to peel back the curtain floor? Come on. (laughs) So So this is the biggest venue. So there is a curtain (laughs) to peel back is what we just learned. (laughs) Now here's what I can, here's what I can tell, here's what I can tell you guys about uh, me. How about that? Let's, I'll tell you guys about me. I, I won't be talking about what happened in caucus, which is probably why you didn't find the Willamette Week interview and you didn't find an Oregonian interview. I, I really feel like the caucus discussions as far as how that how they make decisions about who should lead them. I think it's appropriate that those conversations remain confidential uh, so that we can maintain uh, our unity because we're in the super minority in the state of Oregon. And what the thing that's most important is that we are uh, team oriented. And that is in fact, how I approach my role is to elevate a group of leaders and help them achieve their absolute most and best uh, in service to their community. And so you only do that if you respect the confidentiality of, of those processes. And I'm going to do that. Can I quick, inter- quick interjection before you, one of the thing one of the, the things that I've heard journalists talk a lot about is how they believe that caucus meetings should be public meetings because mm-hmm. so much around decision-making happens there. So I'm assuming you disagree with that, or would you think leadership discussions are sort of a different conversation because of the nature there or just curious to your thoughts on that specific item. Yeah. So this is going to be another way back machine for me. So when we were when Republicans were in the majority in the House and the Senate, the Democrats just pounded their fists on the table saying caucus meetings have to be public. Those dirty Republicans are making all these They're decisions. hiding things. They're hiding things. <laughs> shadowy governments and they've got to be public. And so the Senate Democrats had a period where they invited the press into their caucus meetings, but they were like super minority almost status at that point. And the press lost interest because in fact, no decisions were made in those caucus <laughs> And they decided to close the caucus meetings to the press because, well, and as they picked up numbers and, became, and went back towards the majority, there was a reason for them to go back to having some version of the opportunity for colleagues to be able to, um, to flesh out uh, questions and concerns in that setting. So I have mixed feelings about uh, caucus meetings in as someone that's serving the value of the caucus meeting is you really have so few other forums where you can interact uh, with your colleagues that share your philosophy of government. And like I said, I am committed to unity and teamwork and to in service in service to Oregonians. And that's hard to do if you can't build authentic relationships in some setting. I mean, if you can't meet in social time and you're not doing, you're not going to concerts together, you're not going out to dinner in groups, or you're not doing all those things, when do you build relationships? When do you build authentic relationships? And kind of that iron sharpens iron concept where you are able to find a space and create a creative venue for people to have candid 
disagreements or conversations or just you know um, have kind of that moment where you really don't know and you have the opportunity to be educated behind you know in, within a caucus setting rather than in a public setting it, there's value there hmm. um, I think that if there if there were issues within a caucus setting where public policy was being shaped I think that would be different what I'm talking about are caucus meetings where you navigate the process where you talk about what's coming up on the floor and if you're going to vote up or down which is very very different than shaping policy if you're going to have a conversation where the legislation or the budget actually is going to take form and take shape the public should absolutely be involved in every single one of those conversations none of those conversations should be behind closed doors that sh that should not be the purview of a caucus Hmm. conversation. I, I derailed us a little bit. You were talking a little bit about yourself um, when we asked about your rise to leadership. And so I do I want to hear a little bit about that. You're, help, you're helping Ben nerd out a lot. So <laughs> it's, it's good. You're pulling him out. I didn't mind that a single bit. That's great. And yeah, because I actually think that when it comes to my decision to run for House Republican leader, that was not an easy uh, decision to make. And it certainly was not a decision that I went into the process intending to make. So Alex, you were saying, did you want it from the beginning? Walk in kind of bright eyed and kind of aggressive or whatever. I wasn't at all. I was a freshman legislator and there's a huge, huge canyon between staff back in your misspent youth and <laughs> freshman legislator in a super minority. I went from being chief of staff to the Speaker of the House with Republican majorities in both chambers. Wow. That universe doesn't exist, right? And I needed to be a freshman and I needed to acclimate to this environment and this climate and I needed to learn and I needed to kind of catch up and I still do, I still need all those things. So no, I did not pursue a caucus leader from the beginning. And when I made the decision to pursue that office, it really was because I want to make progress. And I want to shoulder other people's burdens and I want to make, I want, I, I really do want to see a strong institution and the legislature in our state of Oregon, they are strengthened with two parties that are, that are both strong, that can both do a good job articulating their arguments and communicating with the public and being rational, but also being credible and to be able to serve in that role and to be able to advance that goal. It, I made the decision to run for a Republican leader. So the, um, I'm glad you brought up uh, the super minority status and the challenge of the Republican Party, because that's another major theme of our podcast is what's going on with the Oregon GOP. And so you, you and your caucus made some headlines when you, this shocked me candidly, like when you got your full, full caucus to condemn the state GOP's wild and wacky ramblings about the January 6th insurrection, how it was a false flag and how we shouldn't have new domestic terrorism legislation because they're gonna use it against Trump supporters. And the caucus all came out and condemned the state GOP, which is fascinating for a few reasons. One, because it bucks the trend of what's happening nationally. Like our thesis of our podcast is that um, national trends, national figures like Donald Trump, like the civil rights protests are more impacting our state and local politics more deeply now than before. But that incident with your caucus kind of condemning um, the sort of far right, I don't know if you want to call them Trumpers or whatever, kind of bucks that trend. And I haven't seen any sort of political fallout from it, or any sort of, you know, local county parties wanting to um, censure your members or anything like that. So I'm curious if you can talk through 
how you're navigating the the sort of post-Trump Republican Party and how you think the state Republican Party can occupy a, a more helpful and productive space in this state? So that was a compound question at best, right? <laughs> There's five or six in there. Just pick your favorite. Yeah. And I ask questions like that too in committee and people people look at me like, uh, like I'm like I'm like I'm a troublemaker. So that's how I'm looking at you right now, Ben. Just so ben, ben is a troublemaker. So. Guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. Okay, good. So I would say I'm going to take a little bit of that at a time. And the party can't be about one person. It can't be. The party's about Donald Trump. The party's about <laughs> principles, right? So I'm I'm a Republican, and I have been a long time. I mean, if you look at my personal history. I have been a Republican since, you know, since my 20s. And so I am a member of this party because I believe in opportunity. I believe in a ladder to success. I, I believe in lifting people up and giving them a path that is viable for them to achieve their best future. I believe in equality. I believe strongly in equality. And I believe that government is not always the solution to every problem. Not that government has to be small for no good old reason, but government doesn't have to be big for no good old reason. For me, that is not the Democrat party. That's the Republican party. And, and so it's not complicated for me why I'm a member of this party. And it also isn't compl complicated for me how I take those principles and I apply it to service to my community because it always has to be in service to people. No matter what your value set is, if it's not in service to people, you're in the wrong line of work. And, and so the minute that the conversation gets to be about whether or not you are for or against one person, you're overlooking the 65,000 others that I serve for my community. And they're, the, and they're the ones who sent me to serve them in Salem and represent them in that building. They're the ones I'm accountable to. And there wasn't, and the question of political fallout, I'm accountable to my district and my community and everything that I do, I have to come back to them and be able to articulate why it matters to them and how it serves them. And if it doesn't matter to them and it doesn't serve them, I shouldn't be doing it. But and most of your most of your primary voters in your district, I imagine, are like major Trump supporters. Um, you've got a relatively rural district in Clackamas County. I imagine that they think Trump is the best president in US history and would probably, you know, be disappointed that state leaders wouldn't wouldn't rally around him and say he is the future of our party. I mean, CPAC was just renamed, renamed TPAC, uh, apparently. So I wonder, like, so how do you, you know, get, I, I appreciate what you're saying about you serve your constituents, but what about if most of your constituents or most of your primary constituents, primary election constituents are sort of aligned to this one figure? That's okay, isn't it? Let's think this through. Okay. That's national level politics, that's Congress. That is defense spending. That's Medicaid spending. That, that is entirely different than whether or not the power came on during the ice storm here in Clackamas County. Mm -hmm. 150,000 people, and I'm on the phone every single day with the governor and PGE and county leadership saying, how are you serving the people who, who don't have access to any communication right now? How are you getting to them now? Now, that's the difference. So my, my voters absolutely can stand up and, and adore Trump and vote for him. That is fine. They are well served by me in this position because I am committed to their livelihoods and their best interests today in our state, in our community every single day. And that really is the two very different, uh, uh, that, that's, that's really what we need in the Republican party from my perspective is this idea that we can have a big tent. 
and that by you having a different set of priorities for national politics or congressional politics, let's say you vote for me for state legislature and you vote for Kurt Schrader for Congress. God bless you. It's like the Charlie Baker, Larry Hogan approach. You kind of detach yourself from national level politics and you focus on state specific issues and you run hard on, on those issues. Well, and if I wanted to engage on congressional issues, I would have run for Congress. <laughs> right. And so I didn't. I ran, to, I ran to focus locally. I ran to serve locally. I ran to support an institution that I know well and I love. And that's not the same thing as getting mired down in what's going on in the dysfunction in Congress and what's going on in the dysfunction uh, on the national stage. I have, I have nothing to do with any of that. And I'm grateful for that. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not people in my community have a different view on those issues is totally okay. And so Rev Drazen, I wanna uh, jump in on a national issue which is affecting us very much locally right now. And that's uh, the coronavirus uh, issue right now. So previously we had uh, Mayor Lori uh, Dreamer Chavez on and she was incredibly critical of Governor Brown's handling of, of the COVID crisis in Oregon. And uh, just me, since I've been back in Oregon, it's a heck of a lot different even where I was in Virginia before. Restaurants were closed, gyms are still closed. Kids aren't in school. I mean, the coronavirus has, you know, uh, I mean, obviously it's affected everyone horribly, but I mean, I imagine it's affected people with low income a lot more than me as well, because I can work from a computer every day, whereas some people just don't have that. They can't send their kids to school and, and things like that. And one of the issues I know that you had highlighted as a bipartisan one that you could work across the aisle with was, was COVID, was helping to get the kids back to school, uh, get tests in, in school and stuff like that. So I'm curious just because it seems like there's still such partisan lines, even around this issue, is, is what do you think is something that uh, you and Speaker Kotek could work forward to uh, moving, moving forward on the coronavirus front that would actually basically help all Oregonians? Well, so we had three special sessions in a row to do what the legislature could do in our capacity in support of Oregonians in this COVID uh, crisis. And a lot of that had to do with funding. Very little of that had to do with intervening in the governor's activities, the governor's executive orders. We have not, as a legislative body, engaged as a third branch of government almost at all on what coronavirus. Do think, what do you think the legislature should, do you think the, the, the legislature should, should uh, you know, do what New York is talking about doing and strip away the governor's ability to, to make these executive orders? I think that when we are not in session, that the governor has a responsibility to manage emergencies differently than when the legislative body is convened. So now that we have convened, we are the policymakers and we are the budget writers. It's not the governor. In the executive, she executes the, uh, our policies and you know administers those budgets. That's her job. And so in when we were not in session, I think it was very different. And now that we are, and if she wants to continue to her extend her emergency orders, she needs to begin to work with us rather than just pushing us off to the side um, and acting like we are not in a legislative session. And so questions around whether or not uh, we kids are back in school, I think are essential. The guidance that keeps kids out of school right now is um, all Oregon Health Authority based, right? So they set the metrics and they say, these are our recommendations for when you get back in school. And then you really kind of marry that with a political environment that is very deferential to some very powerful uh, Democrat supporters. And you have a tough, tough road ahead for kids. Can um, I ask about, so 
this is it's in so you're you're basically saying the legislature should be um assuming the responsibilities that the governor has sort of claimed in terms of or the executive branch should, has claimed i should say in terms of these guidance but wouldn't that sort of strip power away from the you know state epidemiologists who are you know understand the research and trying to incorporate the metrics if you put it in a political body doesn't that risk undermining the science yeah don't un don't don't misunderstand what i'm saying okay we are, we are the legislative body, which right. means that if we adopt a public policy, then she needs to administer that public policy. The, uh, the assumption is always that the Oregon Health Authority, and specifically, as you mentioned, our epidemiologists in our state, um, our public health experts, have got to be the ones that guide our uh, response to this pandemic. It right. is public, it's a public health pandemic that is very unique. And, and there's nothing as a legislative body that we would do to countermand that. But at this point, you have, you have different kinds of science in different states. How's that possible? So the science in other states lets kids go back to school, but the science in Oregon doesn't. So we need to better understand from a public policy perspective what choices are being made with that data. And really, what you're talking about are decisions around risk. It's not so much we know how coronavirus spreads, we know who, is, who the at-risk populations are. We have vaccines now. So if you're vaccinating your, your highest risk populations and you know what to do to mitigate exposure and risk, at what point do you say, what amount of risk is acceptable for us to get kids back in the classroom? Because we know the impacts on students are gonna be mental health, social and emotional well-being, as well as dramatic academic losses over the course of a year. As public policymakers, we worry about learning loss in a summer. So you, you, know, you make that an entire year where that student is never again gonna be eight years old, or that first grader is never gonna be again, be at the stage where they should be learning how to hold a pencil. These, these, are, these are important learning moments in these students' lives that we won't be able to reverse the clock for. So the question has to be, how does our science align with what they're doing across the nation and the CDC and Fauci. I mean, you could go through the American Academy of, of, P, of Pediat Pediatricians and they all say the number one priority has to get students back in the classroom. There is consensus in the medical and scientific community around that question, but we don't have kids in the classroom in Oregon, which makes it a political overlay on the science. And that's really where other elected officials when we're in session need to engage because now we're not talking about science that's in question. Is it safe? Is it not safe? Is it worth the risk? Is it not worth the risk? That is not in question anywhere else in the nation but, but Oregon. So why are we still here? Excellent explanation of the political overlay on the public health. I think that, that will explain the situation very well to folks and I completely agree. So, so now what? You're the, in a super minority in the legislature and things are not trending in your direction in terms of what you just outlined. So. What, what can you do? What is the strategy of you and your colleagues in the Senate um, Republican caucus? How are you all thinking about COVID response? So I would just say that my ability to influence what happens inside that building isn't just about my numbers some days, right? Sometimes it ends up being about the X factor. Hmm. And when it comes to COVID right now, the thing that you cannot underestimate is the impacts on families and how families are responding. There might just be 23 House Republicans in the House, but there are thousands and thousands and thousands of families across the political spectrum that are saying, 
Kids can go to school in Colorado. Why can't my kid go to school? That is not me. That's not about my political power. That's not about my position. I am standing in the gap for thousands and thousands of families across all across the political spectrum who want to see better outcomes for their students. And that's not selfish. That's the right thing for us to do as a state. And frankly, it's the right thing for us to do as a nation. If we want to be strong, if we want our economy to recover, if we don't wanna see like adverse outcomes 10 years from now for mental health, behavioral health, additional homelessness, you know, that's an important issue to me. We have got to intervene now. We've got to take this seriously. There has to be a level of urgency that I'm not seeing. And I talk to the governor all the time about this. And I ask her, is it enough that you vaccinated teachers? Is that all, is that all the leadership you can apply to this issue? You are the superintendent of public instruction. When, we're, when will our kids get back in the classroom? So, so real quick follow-up before I know we got to close here in five minutes. Some are, would argue that, uh, well, the governor has definitely changed her tone a little bit and is clearly pushing more towards reopening over the last several weeks. I think that's pretty clear, but is also, in my view, trying to respect the local control dynamic at play in Oregon. So do you support a sort of like statewide requirement of in-person instruction by a certain date? Is that how you're thinking of the solution here? I think that for those teachers who were vaccinated, that there should be a commitment that they are willing to re-enter the classroom. And for districts that allowed their teachers to get in line to be vaccinated, there should be a commitment that they create a pathway for those vaccinated teachers to teach in person to some extent. There needs to be progress and it needs to be clear, visible progress. A statewide mandate, that's, that's almost never the solution, but when you accept the vaccine over seniors, over people that are 80 and above, over people with, that are you know, vulnerable conditions, then there has got to be a public benefit to that. And the, and the commitment should be that the governor goes back to those folks and says, I could not have been more, more proud to have prioritized you for vaccinations because I believe in our students and our future. I need you to work with me on this. She has the political leverage to do that. She has the opportunity to do that. Those are her own stakeholders. Those are her own supporters. And she can make gains with those groups like few others. And she should take the opportunity and show leadership and do that. Well, Representative, uh, on behalf of uh, Alex and I, we want to thank you for making time to jump on this podcast. We covered a lot of a lot of ground today. And believe it or not, we still got several several topics we didn't get to. So we'll have to have you back here. I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> Thanks for having me, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. So for folks who want to learn more about you or want to follow your work in the legislature, where would you direct them to, to get engaged with you or your office? My legislative website is uh, the best place to find me and reach me. My office number is 503-986-1439. And uh, it's just rep.christinedrazen at oregonlegislature.gov. And we post information all the time. You can sign up for my newsletters, get additional information. I am a pretty infrequent poster to social media. I'm not the most uh, social media active legislator in the business. There's a lot that are a lot more active than I am. Um, but I am uh, committed to direct responsive communication with folks. So I'm more than happy to reach out uh, through my office anytime. Awesome. Representative, thank you so much. 